Hello, welcome to BioBased Radio, a podcast promoting a more sustainable future through conversations with industry, university, and environmentalists. Today, our host, Denny Hall, is talking with Jim Lane, editor and publisher of Biofuels Digest, the world's most widely read biofuels daily. Hi, I'm Denny Hall, host of BioBased Radio and director of OBIC, the Bioproducts Innovation Center here at The Ohio State University. Today, Jim and I talk about some of the most exciting companies in the bioeconomy. We'll talk about body armor made from spider silk, a bio-based surfboard, and the real story behind the movie 21. It is my pleasure to welcome to our BioBased Radio podcast today, uh, editor and publisher of Biofuels Digest, Jim Lane. Biofuels Digest, if you're not familiar with it, is the world's most widely read biofuels daily. Jim, the numbers I've seen uh, most recently, they're probably not up to date, but 3 million unique online readers, 48,000 daily subscribers, 34,000 social media followers. That's pretty good numbers. Yeah, the numbers have been uh, excellent, and thank you, Denny, for for having us uh, on board with your with your radio podcast. It's uh, delightful to join you, and and yes, the interest in the advanced bioeconomy grows and grows. Those those particular numbers include not only uh, the digest, but also include our uh, newer publication, New, which covers nutrition and uh, healthcare trends and advanced agriculture too. So if you put it all together, yes, there are. Literally millions of people around the world who are biocurious and and uh, very excited to follow these uh, technology innovations and see where they lead us. Well, you do an amazing job of just keeping track of what's going on in this industry, and and so I, it's not surprising that you've got such a big following. And um, your website not only is it the daily news, but you know you have a historical record of bioeconomy news and commentary. You have only such novel assessments of industry progress, educational resources, and your conferences, the ABLC events. I don't know. There's no doubt lots of other stuff that you're up to, but those are jumped to top of mind. Are there some other things that our listeners might want to know about? I mean, you talk about new media uh, the work with nutrition, et cetera, but other things that uh, that we should particularly comment on here. Well, uh, Denny, I appreciate the the kind comments. Um, as as any person who runs an organization can tell you, anything that goes wrong is pretty much my fault, and anything that goes right is usually because we have a great team at uh, at the Digest and New Media. We have um, a number of editors around the world. Megan Sapp has been with us for a number of years, working out of Europe. And Helena Kennedy works out of the D.C. area, and she helms uh, the Monday Digest. And we also have uh, Lucas Santucci down in Argentina that uh, keeps us 
um, uh, working uh, quite well uh, from a technical point of view. We also have Gary Scoggins and Rebecca Coons um, working for us um, on the new side, uh, looking at advanced agriculture and, and health and, and renewable chemicals. So we couldn't do it without uh, the benefit of great team. And, and yes, we have a conference uh, entity, ABLC. Uh, we have ABLC Global this, uh, this year in San Francisco. It will be in November and we'll uh, have uh, not only hosting uh, our, our, our usual roster of speakers, but we're hosting the, the Department of Energy is hosting its it's holding its annual bioeconomy summit as part of ABLC this year. And also the International Energy Agency is uh, hosting its triennial uh, IEA bioenergy uh, summit uh, that will also be at ABLC this year. So it's, uh, it's truly a global event. Also the Biofuture Platform, which is a 30 nation consortium. And of course, cable will be there. Um, in, in force, uh, as well as uh, many others. So lots of uh, groups and activities going on at ABLC Global, as well as our, our usual focus on everything that's happening in the industrial biotech sector and also in the emerging world of protein and nutrition. Uh, we, do, we do, of course, have an active webinar series um, for those that are not able to join, our, our, uh, join us at, live at our conferences. And we actually just uh, concluded one of those today where we looked at uh, pharma trends and M&A and health tech. So we have we have that uh, series uh, that we do called the early stage where we focus on early stage companies and we have a new project coming out uh, called Outfitter and that'll be out later this fall. And that's going to be a webinar series for people who want to gear up on their way to the summit, all the things that you're going to need uh, to help you get there uh, from a, from an equipment point of view. So we're excited to do that. And so it's, you know, it's a pretty busy day running a daily and that's the world of new media, but it's a lot of fun to do because we get to, hang out with uh, great friends like our friends at Cable and, and with you, Denny, and, and your team. Well, we probably ought to explain Cable. We haven't talked about that on this podcast yet, and I, I thought I might save that for the day when I had the uh, chairman of our external advisory board on with me. And for our listeners, that's Jim Lane. We really appreciate his willingness to support. Cable is the Consortium for Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Education. It's a consortium of 20 universities around the country. We're helping to develop those bioeconomy leaders of the future. Each university selects one student to participate in some elite leadership and business skill development activities. They get mentored by not only a faculty person at their institution, but also by industry folks. And it's a full year's commitment on the part of the students, quite a bit of effort on their part, but a unique, rich experience. We really appreciate Jim Lane's involvement in that as our advisor, to really to help connect the industry parts. And we all attend the ABLC Global event, and that's about nearly 50 people, 45, 50 people that show up there for that. And it's a, it's a phenomenal experience. Our students get so much out of it, Jim. We really appreciate what you're doing and, and your ability to help us with creating those leaders of the future. Yeah, we're, we're really excited. You brought us a lot of good luck. The, since, since we partnered up with Cable to, to have you have the group attending, the attendance almost doubled. So I think everyone's excited to, to see young leaders. And, and, I, and I would add that our, our audience is... Uh, large as it is, is is quite young, and and you'd be surprised. We're forty percent millennials in in our readership, and about twelve percent boomers, and the rest are are Gen X. So it's uh, it's quite a young audience that's uh, very open 
to, you know, they, they want a transform world. They want thing, they want different alternatives, different outcomes. They read the labels more carefully. You know, clearly uh, the brain is the same as it was a hundred thousand years ago, but people are using them more effectively today, especially young people to, uh, to make better consumer choices and also better employment choices and going with uh, companies in the, in the bioeconomy, seeing that that's going to be a great future as it is. And of course, you, when you're in the commodity business, whether it's materials or fuels or chemicals or protein or nutrition, there's going to be a lot of upcycle and downcycle. There's irrational exuberance. There's irrational inexuberance. But it has been an exciting ride for everyone who works in the business to bring forward real alternatives, uh, whether it's you know alternative fuels and chemicals to meat without the cow, milk without the cow, leather without the cow, pretty much everything without the cow, <laughs> chickens uh, or eggs without chicken, uh, all kinds of things coming out of the world of industrial biotech now, and whether it's the impossible burger or renewable diesel that allows you to have a ultra low sulfur uh, experience and keep those barrels of petroleum in the ground and keep those emissions in the ground as well. So chicken without chicken? Oh, it's, it's eggs without the chicken. That's uh, Clara Foods. Um, Arthur Elizondo is the uh, CEO there. And uh, it's part of a whole trend. I mean, there's Ripple Foods, which is uh, pea-based uh, milk, uh, essentially. And that was actually founded by Neil Reninger uh, as the, the founder there, the technology founder. And he was the, um, uh, many, many of you might know Neil from his role as a co-founder of Amaris and as an entrepreneur in residence at Coastal Ventures. But also, if you've ever seen the film 21, which is about a, a bunch of young uh, MIT kids who take over Vegas, uh, Neil was one of those kids. It's a real story, actually. It's, it's been highly fictionalized, so I wouldn't say that uh, he quite fits one of the characters there. But, uh, but that story is a true story, and Neil was one of those people. So, so that's, a, that's carried forward into a series of innovations, whether it's uh, Clara or uh, on, the, on the Meat Without the Cow, you see... Uh, companies like Impossible uh, Foods and Beyond Meats and Memphis Meats. And on the uh, Leather Without the Cow, you see companies like Modern Meadow and uh, Milk Without the Cow, the aforementioned Ripple, but also there's uh, Move Free, which is now known as Perfect Day. And again, uh, an ex-Amorous Amerigian, uh, Tim Geislinger is the CTO there. And uh, it's a great team bringing you a experience that's so exactly like milk it's it's the same stuff it's just not made from a cow so it's uh, it's made in industrial biotech uh, circumstances and that's just a better way to do it as far as the footprint and and also just sort of ethical uh, treatment of animals so it's amazing what's going on in the domain of biology and synthetic biology do you want to just kind of share from your perspective what you're seeing as these developments in increasingly start to commercialize? Yeah, sure. Well, let's start with the drivers. And I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the term synthetic biology because it implies that we're making something synthetic. Actually, we're making something living and real. Um, so I, I tend to use the word digital biology because it's about a convergence of a couple of different types of technology. One, the revolution in computation. And it's been going on for quite some time. You know, obviously, 40 years ago, we didn't have desktop computers, much less iPhones. So we all know there's been a revolution in computation and that the, the servers are more powerful and, and uh, faster and uh, more miniaturized than ever. And that trend, Moore's Law, is going on all the time. There is also a corresponding trend in mobility and robotics. And those of you that are familiar with the autonomous vehicles or, or what have you would, would know a lot about that or, or advanced manufacturing using robotics. So robotics are becoming a, uh, a very big friend 
and in in uh, becoming a part of daily life, whether it's companies like Amazon that have uh, robotically operated shops or you have drones uh, above our uh, agricultural fields that are able to ascertain the actual water needs of, a, of an individual plant instead of just spraying water out there. Hopefully, you can uh, do what's called precision ag. So that's uh, an area of robotics and mobility that we're able to, to move smart devices around in a way that we weren't before. And then, of course, the third trend that many people are aware of is the revolution in genetics, and that's the one that's closest to home for, for this particular industry, industrial biotech. And, and so that's an entirely different revolution, but it has its own Moore's Law environment. It cost a billion dollars to decode the human genome, uh, just one back about uh, 20 years ago, and in fact, I was just over yesterday at Synthetic Genomics, which was founded by Craig Venter, and that's actually the person whose DNA was decoded. He actually did it. A uh, billion dollars took about 10 years to do, and now you can do it in you know minutes for less than $100. So that's the genetics revolution, and we have the ability to edit uh, genes. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9 is a, or, or CRISPR technology. There's a couple of different enzymes that perform the scissors work, Cas9 being one of them. And so those are the three underlying trends, and there are companies in every one of those spaces, if not dozens of companies, that are building the toolkits and bringing those uh, technologies together to, to make either novel molecules or to optimize. And on top of that is a whole range of companies in the areas of fuels, chemicals, nutrition, flavors and fragrances, and also everyday specialty chemicals. And I think we've mentioned protein as well at the top of this um, is, a, is a major trend as well. So it's the same kind of technologies when we talk about the genetics and the robotics and, and the computational ability. But um, whether we're making higher yield in the field so that we don't have to use as many acres to grow our necessities or uh, certainly be able to accommodate a larger population or just being more precise and efficient about the way that we produce that, all the way through to a revolution in the way that we are designing uh, organisms that can produce. You feed them, it's like a yeast, you feed sugar to it, and it doesn't just make wine anymore. It makes thousands and thousands of uh, products, uh, whether you're, it's uh, algae, E. coli, or yeast, they've been optimized. And so it's become a materials revolution. You can have technologies like uh, bolt threads that use a, a modified enhanced organism just in the fermenter, to uh, so it's safely in, encapsulated there. But it, it what it produces is a fiber that's exactly what a spider would provide to us. So you can have a spider silk, which is incredibly strong. It's stronger than steel, but more flexible. Well, we all know how flexible it is, but it is incredibly strong. And you can use that in anything from Kevlar type applications, you know, for for body armor, all the way to uh, flexible and lightweighted materials that can provide the stability and strength that we use from, that we need from steel, but um, the cost and the molding flexibility that we would expect from yarn. So if you can imagine having the flexibility of yarn, but the strength of steel, this is just one example and bolt threads would be an example of that. So it's, uh, you know, we could go on and on, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll stop there and we can maybe get into some specific uh, companies uh, that you are, or, or technologies that you're particularly interested in. Yeah, well, why don't before we go into some of those companies, you got started with fuels. And as we're looking at higher oil prices today than what we did or comparable oil prices today as 
is what it were back in 2005. I read that in your news this morning. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing increased interest in renewable fuels. Could you maybe speak a little bit to the renewable fuel standard and, and sort of like some of the issues of the day associated with renewable fuels? Yeah, sure. The, the renewable fuel standards in the United States, <clears throat> and it uh, was, was passed uh, 13 years ago this week. And so it's, uh, it's 13 now, so it's a pretty robust. It's the only piece of carbon legislation or emissions legislation that is on the books in the United States. So it's, it's all we have. There's, no, there's nothing really relating legislatively to the power side. So it's the only piece of legislation. It's very controversial amongst um, people who are in the, the coal and petroleum business, of course, because they would like to have the market share back. But it's driven the U.S., been a major contributor towards uh, U.S. energy security and energy independence and now today, uh, more than 12% by, by volume of all fuels in the United States are, are driven from renewables and resources, and that's primarily because of the RFS. So, so that's, that's the good news, but there are always questions about the implementation and, and how you do it. And as we rightly pointed out, or you rightly pointed out in your comment, oil prices are on the rise, and they went through quite a trough there, getting down as low as $20 a barrel uh, just uh, three years ago, but uh, they're not 20 now. Uh, Brent crude is $74, and if you do it on a euro-adjusted basis, because the U.S. currency is, has appreciated quite some time and uh, quite some bit in the last uh, 13 years against European uh, currencies, oil prices are 23% higher than they were back in 2005 when we were frightened enough about the prospect of oil prices going up that we passed the renewable fuel standard. Now we're 23% higher. So that's going to be a continuing driver. We have published uh, reports in the digest that are prepared by, you know, energy analysts that follow the, the trends very carefully. The, the consensus is that oil prices will spike over $100 per barrel by 2020 and could go as high in late 2020 as $200 a barrel. And that is a, a very, very difficult event for uh, Western economies to handle because of the pervasiveness of fuel. So we need these alternatives because that's what allows us to balance that price out. So that's, that's the good news. The RFS is driving that. What is driving the, uh, the rise in the price of um, petroleum is going to be the switchover uh, long contemplated. The world's uh, fleets are going to an ultra low sulfur diesel and they'll be doing that uh, in 2020. So there's just a lot of demand that's going to have to be uh, shifted to producing ultra-low sulfur diesel. We have that in road transport, but it just hasn't happened yet in marine. It, it'll be happening shortly. So that capacity will switch from, from using one type of fuel to another, and uh, that's going to cause uh, refinery economics to change quite dramatically. So it's not something that we can frack our way out of that situation as we did uh, four or five years ago, because it's not a problem of petroleum supply as we had a few years back. It's actually refinery capacity. And we're not going to be building any more petroleum refineries. They're very, very difficult to permit. Nobody wants them. So uh, the refining capacity that's going to have to be built uh, to accommodate the rising demand is going to be coming from alternative fuels and also to some extent from electrification of the fleet. And whether it's hybrids or, or plug-in electrics, uh, plug-in electrics have come along very slowly and they still represent well under 1% of the U.S. fleet. So we need, you know, these alternative fuels. That's what the RFS uh, drives. And uh, so it requires oil refiners to have a certain percentage. 
their gasoline and their diesel to contain a renewable alternative. And uh, what we've seen over time is real resistance to these blend levels. They, they would like to have that market share back, the, the oil refining companies. But also, we've also seen the rise of drop-in replacements where these are not like biodiesel or ethanol that are can only be uh, dropped in at a certain blend percentage. But renewable diesel, for example, is a completely complete 100% replacement of uh, fossil diesel. You can run it in your car and it gets exactly, this, actually get a little bit better mileage, as a matter of fact, than you get with uh, about 1% or 2% better mileage with renewable diesel than you get with fossil diesel. And uh, you don't need to change your car at all. So it's a, it's a very effective product. And it's really very much a product of the RFS because without that uh, uh, legislation in place, investors never would have taken the risk to bring forward a molecule um, if they were not sure that they were going to have a market to do it. So that's what the RFS does. It guarantees that there will be a market. It doesn't say what the market will look like. Uh, in terms of this molecule or that molecule, but it does guarantee that if you bring forward an alternative fuel molecule, there will be a market for it. So, so that is a uh, it's a valuable thing. So that's kind of what the RFS is and does. So the renewable diesel, I assume that meets the criteria of ultra low sulfur. Yeah, actually, all bio-based uh, fuels have essentially no sulfur in them whatsoever. So they're not only uh, ultra low sulfur diesel; they're kind of no sulfur diesel. So they're they're tremendous. They eliminate all kinds of problems that are associated with, uh, with combusting things that have sulfur in them. So can you blend your way to ultra-low sulfur, or is it going to have to be just reduced? Well, to get to the levels, they, they, they're, they're looking at reducing sulfur levels by about 80 to 90%. So it would be, you'd have to have, instead of having a 10% biofuel blend, you'd have to have a 90% biofuel blend. You might as well go to to all biofuels. Now, refineries can produce ultra-low sulfur diesel. It's just very complex and expensive for them to do that. And it, it kind of changes the way that they run their refinery and um, it shifts petroleum away from gasoline is essentially what it does. And so you end up with a shortage of gasoline and that's what's going to cause the oil price to rise as people bid uh, to get that, that gasoline. It's, uh, gasoline is a fabulously complex product there are over 450 molecules that would be considered to be within the gasoline range. And your average gallon you have in your car does have over 100 of them, a lot of them in what are called aromatics. But there's, there's lots and lots of molecules in there. So anytime you're changing refinery process, you're changing the way that those 100 molecules are brought together and the percentages. And it, it can really uh, negatively impact. But we need that low sulfur diesel. We cannot have those emissions anymore. And we've taken them out of road transport successfully, but marine is a very big sector. And the refinery capacity is just not there right now to absorb that. And as I said, we're not building any more oil refineries. Uh, they're just too big, too complex, too expensive, and they're impossible to permit. Nobody wants one next door to them. So we need to have more and more refining capacity because our population is increasing and people around the world are getting more vehicles and getting around more because they're getting more affluent. So it's not just, you know, what the needs are. It's a global commodity fuels. It's not just about what we do here in the United States. Even if all of us were to stop driving tomorrow, it doesn't change what they do in India, China, and other places with vastly larger populations than we have. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, we need more refining capacity and we need it to be bio-based for a lot of good reasons. How about we talk a little bit about plastics? It seems like plastics are catching an awful lot of news lately. 
things like plastic straws and plastic bags and ocean-based plastics we're finding out in the oceans. What are you seeing in terms of the bio-based alternatives to, to these petroleum plastics that are causing problems? There are, there are a variety of different problems that are caused by packaging as a whole. And there are a variety of reasons why packaging is a very good idea. Um, it's not just about having a convenient plastic shopping bag. It's about having a barrier uh, between the material inside the package and the outside world, which is full of crazy microbes. So we need those uh, plastics. We want them to have very strong barriers, and barrier properties are very important. It's one of the reasons we use plastics, uh, clear plastics especially, because you can then see through that barrier and you know purchase that product, whether it's a Coca-Cola or, or some, some meat in the, uh, at the counter. And the bio-based opportunity is, is, has a couple of different dimensions to it. First of all, there's a molecule coming forward that is an alternative to what is called PET plastic. And for those of you that are not familiar with the chemical acronyms, think of the clear plastic bottle. That's made from a material called PET. There is a alternative. It's a different acronym. It's called PEF. So it sounds very much the same, but it's very different. If you've ever noticed that when you go to a hotel or a, a place that offers very small Coca-Colas, that the, the small ones are still served in, in aluminum cans, whereas large bottles are you know, often uh, plastic for a variety of good reasons. And one of the problems there is that the traditional bottle, the PET bottle, doesn't uh, have very good gas retaining barrier uh, features and performance in very, very small packages. So that's the reason why we don't have very, very, very tiny PET plastic bottles. But PEF, which is a bio-based molecule, it's made from uh, an intermediate that can be made from sugar. And it is uh, increasingly going to be available. There are companies like Avantium and also DuPont and Archer Daniels Midland have a joint venture or a joint partnership to, uh, to produce this uh, precursor molecule and ultimately to produce this PEF alternative. So it has better performance, number one. And that means that you can have certain uh, bottles that never could be clear plastic can now be clear, clear plastic. So that's a bio-based alternative. Secondly, um, you can have less plastic do the same job. And so that's attractive to a lot of people, whether you're just thinking about you know, cost efficiency why wouldn't you want to have, you know, use less? And to environmentalists or those who are concerned about the use of plastic, why wouldn't we want to use less to do the same job? So BioBase can, can offer these performance benefits. And there's a second area of plastic that, that concerns a lot of people, and that is the area of plastic waste. What do you do with it? And there's been a lot of attention towards biodegradable plastic. And, of course, there is a lot of activity in developing bio-based alternatives and uh, I get very cautionary about that, Denny, because while you can get a, a degradable plastic, such as PHA, it'd be a perfect example. It's a different molecule, but it's a, it's a clear plastic packaging material or can be uh, not clear. And uh, it certainly does biodegrade. But what does it degrade into is the question. And so I, I do worry about people who simply think we ought to have a biodegradable plastic because you have to ask the second question, well, what does it become when it degrades? Because it's going to become something. And in this case, it becomes methane. 
Now, methane is 20 times potent, more potent a greenhouse gas than, um, than CO2 is. So I, I get very cautionary about simply saying the world should have biodegradable plastics. It sounds very good, but, you know, creating a world that's full of methane isn't going to be, isn't a climate change strategy. But the next thing you can do is recover. And recycling and recovering is very, very important because you can reuse those plastics, especially if they're bio-based. You can reuse those again and again and again. And those are made from, by drawing, uh, if they're made from plants, they use, they're made from drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. And if you recover and, and, and reuse and recycle that plastic again and again, not only does it not go into the ocean where it does no, nobody any good, but you can keep that carbon effectively recycled or sequestered uh, for all time in that, in that plastic chain. So the most important thing is, is one, to have plastics that have better performance where we can have less plastic doing the, doing the same job or doing a better job. Secondly, you know, maybe here and there a biodegradable plastic, but more importantly, we need to beef up our recycling, recovering, and reusing efforts so that we can cycle that carbon, not just once, you know, one and done, throw away the plastic, but, but to actually to, um, to use that plastic again and again and again and uh, get 25, 35, 45 uses out of that same set of molecules. That sounds like the recipe for uh, efficiency and for environmental friendliness to a lot of people. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about these bio-based companies that are sort of helping us lead the way to this next generation of materials. You publish your Hot 40 and, and always have a, such interesting lists of companies. Who are some of the companies that, that you're, and, and we've already talked about the meat without the cow and the milk without the cow, so we've talked about some of the nutrition, but in the area of materials, who are some of the companies that you find most fascinating? Well, of course, we just talked about plastics, which is perhaps the most exciting uh, material to come along. Um, I would point out that just in general, that um, polylactic acid, which is you know, made from a bio-based process, is the uh, resin of choice for 3D printing. And 3D printing is a very exciting technology, both for uh, on-demand uh, making of materials, making them in, you know, whether you're on, you know, if you want to make a spare part on Mars, what are you going to do? You can't exactly go back to earth and go get one. So you can 3d print. So those technologies are going to help us in space and at home. And that resin that is going to be used to make that is, is a bio-based resin. So those companies that are making that PLA and a company like NatureWorks is, is a company that uh, makes that that's a unit of Cargill is, is one to watch. There are a number of companies that are making chemical chemicals that are used to make materials and Perhaps the most exciting are those companies that are making materials that are useful in the production of fabrics and nylons. I mentioned, um, I mentioned that uh, spider silk technology, bolt threads. Uh, there are some other ones, Craig Biocraft would be one that comes to mind, but there are several companies working on, on sort of spider silk where you have these enormous performance benefits. And by getting that flexibility of yarn, but the strength of steel, and there's that area, but there are also some other you know, more conventional materials like nylon. Now, nylon the, is made from precursors, and uh, there are different types of nylon, but, you know, we'll just use the word nylon as a, as a, as a general uh, catch-all. 
And those, uh, many of those precursors uh, can and should be made from bio-based alternatives. I was just over yesterday at a company uh, called Genomatica, and we were doing a, we're doing a profile next week that'll be out next week in the digest on the pace of innovation and the, the way that innovation is changing. And uh, so we're featuring Genomatica in that particular case, but they are bringing forward a molecule um, called BG, which is uh, butylene glycol, I think is, is what it uh, translates into. And it's used in those uh, fabric uh, type applications. And so that's uh, made from sugar. And so there's, you know, lots and lots of opportunities to make conventional fabrics. And there are some uh, a wide variety of specialty chemicals that are used as precursors to make everything from, you know, like yoga pants. Um, you can have bio-based uh, surfboards uh, where the epoxy is, is made from, from a bio-based. Uh, and, and so the Elon Musk, the famous surfboard uh, that just sold out recently, I think they were charging 2300 bucks to buy a surfboard. And they sold out in about 15 minutes because Elon Musk was behind the design. And that was made with a, with a bio-based material. So there's, you know, very high-end stuff, you know, like that. But a lot of the materials that you're going to see aren't going to be used in sort of high-end products like surfboards. You're going to see them in everyday applications like cars. Cars weigh a lot. And one of the great ways to get fuel efficiency is to lightweight the car. But we don't want to lose that structural integrity. And that's where bio-based uh, performance really comes to the fore. And I've mentioned those technologies that are as flexible as yarn, but as strong as steel. Well, that really is the kind of thing that you want to see in a car. So virtually every, almost everything in the car, except for the actual metal that houses the engine, uh, can be made from a bio-based material. You can have the seats, you can have the carpeting, uh, the shell of the car, you can have all kinds of uh, things that are bio-based replaced that, that lightweight the vehicle and give you a tremendous uh, fuel economy advantages, uh, but also no sacrifice in safety. I would point out just one uh, word that, that I would point people to, and that is nanocellulose. And that is a, a very, very exciting material that is going to have applications in everything from concrete to um, uh, milkshakes. It's, it's an edible material, and it can re reduce some of this. It uh, can be used perhaps to replace these microbeads that you've heard about perhaps that we're very concerned about getting into the ocean. So there are some microbead technologies out there. Um, there are applications in, in fabrics and, and paints and lacquers, um, all coming from this really tiny, tiny material called nanocellulose, and it's basically pulverizing uh, using advanced technology uh, a fiber that you get maybe from a tree into a nano-sized shape. And, and that particular material, when it gets down to nano-size, when it reforms and recrystallizes, it, um, it has some amazing properties. And it's a little bit like, to use an analogy, um, it's a little bit like if you reform carbon that you would have on the end of your pencil. If you were able to reform that, you would get a diamond. It's the same material. It's just organized in a different way. So nanocellulose has the same kind of feature in the sense that it's material that you would use, that the trees use. But when it's pulverized and recrystallized, it, it achieves really, really strong tensile properties and then yet is very flexible to use. So so look for nanocellulose as a big bio-based application. Companies like American Process are bringing that forward, among others. Many new materials, all these materials are made from something. Nanocellulose, you commented, is 
likely a fiber from a tree. Other feedstocks you indicated, sugar. I'm just curious if you want to talk a little bit about where these bio-based materials are going to come from. Well, as many of them as possible are going to come from existing waste streams. You know, waste is a material that we simply don't have a use for. And finding a use for it takes it out of the landfill, takes it out of the waste stream and turns it into a valuable material. It's sort of from trash to cash. So that's the first place we look. Is there is there a, a material that nobody can use that is a byproduct of an industrial process or is a tra- tra- forest slash could be the stubble left on an agricultural field after harvest. It could be municipal solid waste. It could be an industrial liquid. Many of those can be uh, recaptured. And let me give you an example. One of the most uh, dangerous sources of emissions in the world, not so much on a volume basis, but just potency is carbon monoxide. You just cannot vent that um, for a variety of good reasons, as we all know. Well, still, steel mills make carbon monoxide as a part of making steel, but you can do something with that off-gas. Currently, what they do right now is they flare it, and so they turn it into CO2, and they, it's vented into, um, into the atmosphere, which is a, you know, it's a bad environmental thing to do. We should be able to do better by now, but more importantly, it's a waste of a good material because there's energy in carbon monoxide. So there's a company out there called Lanzatech, and there's another one called Sonata Bio that um, use carbon monoxide. Also, I think Fulcrum Bioenergy does that as well. But Lanzatech has a, a fermentation technology. The other ones um, have more of what's a traditional uh, catalytic process that use hydrogen and use carbon monoxide to uh, make fuels, chemicals, and biomaterials. So starting with waste is the first place. Now, the second thing you would do after you've exhausted all your opportunities and residues, whether it's the landfill or an industrial off-gas, like steel mill waste gas, and there's plenty of that, is to look to uh, marginal fields that have fallen out of agricultural production. So these are places where you can grow stuff, but for a variety of reasons relating to blind demand logistics, we're just not growing anything now, or we're growing something like a grass cover or clover just to keep the field from breaking up and and, uh, becoming a dust bowl. So we can use that to excess capacity, if you will. We certainly don't want to grow uh, food or other existing materials on those acres because that simply would, you know, upset supply and demand and cause a, you know, collapse in in farmer prices. And that would drive farmers into uh, real distress and ultimately, then they can't produce the food. So you don't you don't want that, even though it sounds tempting just to you know produce a lot more food out there to reduce food prices. You don't solve the world's problems by driving farmers into bankruptcy. And that's not just farmers in the U.S. That's farmers in, in you know that are subsistence farmers around the world. They need to to bring product to market to achieve a living. And if they are not able to grow at home, they have to move into the cities and they become part of the problem, not part of the solution. So we. We want to use those excess acres, but we want to use them for new materials, basically new markets. So that's the second place that we can go. And there's lots of crops that we can grow. It just depends on, it could be something that already grows there and we just find a new use for it. So it could be a corn or soybeans or wheat or, you know, anything like that. Or it could be a novel, a relatively novel uh, crop. It could be a tree like pongamia. Uh, that has, or eucalyptus that has very nice oil properties. So you can get a very nice oil out of it. Or it could be something that's uh, like sorghum, 
that is uh, full of uh, full of uh, hydrocarbons or carbohydrates, and you can use those to make all kinds of materials. So there's all kinds of things, but we want to grow in that extra acre that's not being used right now. Simply identify something that would grow effectively there. When you get to acres that have never been in production because they're simply not arable, then there are solutions because we're bringing forward crops that are more drought tolerant and that are you know more resistant to harsh conditions. So we might look to grow some of those crops there. And if you get truly out into the desert, you can do things like grow algae because those need water, sunlight, uh, CO2, and uh, some nutrients. And those are ready materials even in the desert as long as you have a a source of, uh, let's say, underground water. A lot of them take seawater. So if you have a desert location right next to the sea, you can pump seawater in, uh, take the CO2 from the atmosphere, and you're well on the way to creating a fuel chemical or a material in a place that never had any agriculture. So lots of options. And the answer is for specific feedstocks is find something that's really well suited to that area, not only being high yield, but sustainable. And, and that is not an invasive plant that is, is well suited to becoming part of that ecosystem in that locality. So we've talked about feedstocks. We've talked about a variety of conversion technologies. Of, of course, um, the consumers are, are ones that are going to help drive all of this change. What's your sense of consumer awareness of biobase? Is it anything we need to worry about that, that consumers as a general rule are, are largely unaware of like programs like the USDA BioPreferred? Or is it that our brand owners are going to increasingly be looking at these novel materials, these environmentally superior materials, and put them in their packages or, or their products and offering them that way? What's your perception of where the marketplace is and how consumers will participate in this? There, there's probably two, two ways to look at that. And one is to look at that in terms of how population is shifting and how people are changing the way that they think. As we mentioned, sort of at the top of the hour, 40% of our readership is millennial, and then about 12, 13% is in what you consider the baby boomer. So we see a real shift in the way that baby boomers and Gen X and millennials think about things like buying food, clothes, materials for their everyday lives. The millennial population is just much more sensitized to making um, decisions that take into account ingredients and supply chain. And it's not just about price to them. More in the baby boomer side, bit more price driven and bit more change resistant. Gen X, somewhere in between. It has to do with the fact that there weren't alternatives, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. So things like product safety product performance and price were the only variables. Sustainability simply wasn't a question or an option for a lot of people. They didn't grow up with those ideas. So it's been a little bit harder for them to get uh, hip to those concerns, if you will. Um, so, so part of this is simply just a matter of time. Millennials are just now getting to the point where they're becoming a very, very important part of, you know, the broader consumer economy. You know, for, for many years, they were, you know, part of the the school age population, but now they're, they're getting out into their careers. And so we're seeing a lot of change already being driven and companies are responding to that and understanding that they, 
it's it's not a question of whether they can afford to make these changes. It is a question of whether they can afford to not make these changes in terms of their supply chain. So companies like Walmart are changing supply chain. Adidas made a, a note that they will not be uh, using non-sustainable materials to, to a larger extent. Lego has shifted over to bio-based bricks. Um, Starbucks is getting rid of the straw. You see evidence, you know, just all over the map of people responding to that. That's, that's that population age shift. So that's the first part of it. And then the second part of it has to do with your question, your note about things like bio-preferred, which has to do with reading of labels. And we're very much at the, you know, regardless of where you are in your demographics, we're very much at the early days of learning to effectively and transparently label supply chain concerns as opposed to labeling performance or just simply made in China versus made in Japan or made in India. And so labels have not conveyed a lot of information historically, and we've not looked to them to convey much more than sort of basic material. Is it nylon? Is it, you know, a natural fabric? Am I going to be allergic to it? So it was, it was kind of people read labels defensively in the past. Is it a problem for me? because I want made in USA instead of made in China, or I am allergic to that material. So, so people read labels defensively, and that's been our history. And now people are moving towards moving, moving to a, a period where we're going to be reading labels proactively and looking for things and even getting devices. There's a company called Consumer Physics, which is bringing forward a device that basically is a a uh, spectrographic tool that you can hold in the palm of your hand and you can wave it in front of a, like a, an apple to test freshness or to test uh, sugar content. So you get it, not only are you getting labeled information, but you're more and more consumers are going to be taking charge through apps and devices of using their iPhones to get the information they need. And so we're moving from a defensive era of labeling and, you know, companies saying, how little can I put on the label to a, a new era of labeling where it's much more proactive. So both those trends, as they play out over a number of years, are very favorable to the bioeconomy. It's just going to take uh, a certain amount of time as we get more millennials further into their careers, buying houses, buying cars, buying, you know, bigger ticket purchases and, and secondly, where we, we get that shift that we already see in the labeling, it's just going to take a matter of time to, uh, to get that proactive sort of label focus across the economy and not only in the U.S., but also into the developing world where it will do a lot of good as well. So that's uh, two favorable trends, just early days. Jim, you have an amazing knowledge and feel for this bio-based industry and and today, it's, it's been great to have you as a guest on our bio-based radio. So I want to thank you for uh, your time. I, I feel like I could visit with you all day and, and look forward to talking to visiting with you again soon. We'll see you out in San Francisco, if not before. And so, Jim, thanks for your time, and good luck with you and all these other enterprises that you're associated with. And uh, really appreciate you telling the story for bio-based products. Well, Denny, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you and, and with your listeners. And you can join our conversation at, at uh, biofuelsdigest.com or we'll see you at a, one of our conferences and we'll see you and your cable team in San Francisco in November. Looking forward to that very much. 
Thank you for listening to BioBase Radio, and thank you to our guest, Jim Lane, for being on the show today. BioBase Radio is a production of the Bioproducts Innovation Center at The Ohio State University. Produced in association with the United States Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture. BioBase Radio is hosted by Denny Hall, produced and edited by Casey Needham and Brad Collins. If you'd like to help our podcast grow, plant the seed with a friend and rate and review on iTunes. <laughs>